The Real Food Reel is proudly sponsored by LCHF Endurance. Stabilize your blood sugar, burn fat, decrease inflammation and become fat adapted in just 12 weeks. I'm so excited to share with you that LCHF Endurance is currently 50% off for a limited time only. Simply use the code LCHFE50 to sample the program, check out the kind of meals you'll get to eat, and cancel within seven days if it's not your sugar-free jam. Head to lchfendurance.com.au and use the code LCHFE50 for 50% off your upfront program payment today. Welcome to The Real Food Real. I'm Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist. We're shaking things up on the podcast and each week I am joined by our cast of experts, including Kirsty Worth, Phil Maffetone, Kale Brock, Ali McLean, Katie Pettuccini, and so many more leaders in the fields of real food, gut health, sports performance, holistic wellness, and optimizing your health, metabolism, and longevity. While you're tuning into today's episode, would you take a screenshot of your smartphone and share it on social media with the hashtag RealFoodReal? I'd absolutely love to know that you're tuning in. And while you're there, why not share this episode with a friend who also needs to hear our information goldmines and aha moments. Sharing the show means we can continue our mission of simplifying nutrition and showing the world that health starts with what you choose to put on your plate. Without further ado, let's dive into this week's episode of The Real Food Real. In episode 264 of The Real Food Real, we are joined by Kirsty Worth from Cultured Wellness to explore infant gut health. Kirsty shares her personal journey and how this has driven her research and purpose behind cultured wellness to this day. We explore why preconception and pregnancy gut health matters and what you can do to support your health and the health of your future baby. We bust some pretty big myths, including organ meats and vitamin A, including what the best alternative to infant rice cereal is, eating for two, and so much more. Hi, Kirsty, and welcome back to the show. Hey, Steph. Thanks so much for having me. This is a topic I'm so excited about. So infant gut health. Tell me why this is so important to you. Oh, goodness. So I really am the pinup girl of (laughs) uh, what can happen if um, you're not aware of the research, you're not aware of the understanding of how important infant gut health is and your own health as a mother, even preconception, because, you know, my experience, gosh, it's driven so much of my research and my work now and specifically with what I do at Cultured Wellness because when I, when I, even before I fell pregnant, so preconception, oh my gut was just terrible. I had horrendous gut infections that I only found out about after my children were born. I had constant diarrhea. I was on all sorts of pain medications, sleeping tablets, had a terrible, terrible diet because anything I ate was just would cause explosive diarrhea. So I really was on that 
basic bland white diet just to keep everything in it, it kind of in a box so it wouldn't explode at um you know if I was out and about in public and so you know I, I just did not know that that wasn't appropriate I didn't know that that could impact my children I had no idea no one else around me to tell me any of this information and so it means so much to me that we get this information out there because my children and specifically my son Noah his whole life has and will be affected by my gut health and by his um, development of his gut and um, I don't want that to happen to other children I want other children to have the start like your little Grace did this beautiful you know start in life with a robust gut microbiome so I'm super super passionate about it and you'll probably hear as we have this conversation that I, I will get really, really more passionate than I normally do, Steph, when we chat because, um, oh, you know, my, my kids just didn't have to go through what they went through. And I see it as a blessing now because now they are the shining light to be able to um, help other families and other mothers and fathers find out what they can do and how they can make changes. But, yeah, I really want to make sure that their experience was worth it and um other people can benefit from it so yeah being being passionate about this is an understatement yeah well it's your whole life now of course and we do need the canaries in the coal mine so i love that you've turned it into a blessing because i can imagine you know you would have had to do the work to to end up um you know coming to terms i guess is probably one way to explain it because you can't change the past but you can redirect your future so I think it's beautiful now that you are so passionate about educating others because you know I have gone through the experience recently and um, obviously I'm a nutritionist so any conversation that I have with a doctor is a little bit different but I do recall that first appointment where I was asked if I was taking folate and then handed a list of foods to avoid, which is very outdated, which we may or may not cover today. But there was no detail around sort of food quality, nutrient density, the microbiome, what to, you know, what to do. And like, I just imagine that that's almost everyone's experience, unfortunately, that all we're really told is, are you taking a folate and, and, you know, avoid A, B, C, D, E, F, G in this huge list of foods? Like, honestly, I think a lot needs to change at that grassroots levels because, of course, our preconception health is so important. Absolutely. And, you know, depending on what circles you run in, it's just not a conversation that you have. The conversations are, do you have morning sickness? How are you going with that? You know, are you just coping on the dry toast kind of situation? But, you know, and you, you're talking more about where are you going to have your children and who's your obstetrician or are you going to a midwife? There's no conversation about have you had your liver pate today because that's going to be awesome for bubs and those sorts of things. And obviously, if you're in a nutrition circle, that's fine, but I wasn't. And um, so it, it does It does need to get out there more and it needs to be front and centre, first appointment. And it needs to happen before that. So we need to see in women who are um, in that preconception time or even well before that, 
even I think even with the partner that you're looking at to have children with, you should be considering their gut health and you should be considering your gut health and absolutely focusing on that. It should be front and centre. And it doesn't have to become obsessive, but we need to make sure that we're nurturing our bodies and taking out the inflammatory foods and putting in all those nourishing foods. So we're in the best health possible. And our, you know, our levels, our nutrient bucket is so nice and high that when we do conceive, everything is just really robust and we give our little beautiful children the best, best option and best um, chance to be able to develop. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's an important conversation and, if, and it's not just up to the mother or the mother-to-be. I think um, if we're starting with preconception, then you know, have that conversation with your partner because it's 50-50 at this stage. So doing it together, I think, is such a beautiful way to have some support and some accountability as you make the changes to make it, you know, practical and cost-effective because you're no doubt eating together and to have this project that you're really passionate about because of the flow and effect, how significant what you do in that preconception stage is for your life and your future children's life. Like that's that's one of the most important things there is. So what are your thoughts on a, a kind of time frame? Like how soon in that preconception phase should we should we be looking at our our nutrition and our gut health and the whole picture? Well, I mean as Yeah, I know, right? So for me, like if we looked at Imagine that I was in the state that I was in mm. and then I was offered all this incredible information. I would need a good year or two, Steph, to really bring my body back into the balance again because I was so out of balance. I was taking six to eight Nurofen a day, about six Panadols a day, sleeping tablets. I, yeah, like um, I was in all sorts. I had to just come off the pill. I had, um, you know, I was still covering myself in, you know, toxic skincare, all of my cleaning products. Um, I had no idea that that was impacted, <laughs> it could impact me. I was drinking. I was, um, you know, certainly eating lots of sugar. And to shift that needle, to swing that pendulum right over to having a robust microbiome and a robust strength within my body. I wish I had a good year or two. Mm. Now, that's the extreme. So um, it, when we're talking about someone who's feeling really pretty good, I would say a good six months at least to be able to build up those stores. Um, I'd like to see some bloods taken. So, you know, getting bloods sort of at the six-month mark and then at the three-month mark would be a really nice way of making sure that you don't get yourself into a spin. Because, of course, you can get yourself into a spin of, I want to do the best by this child. And I think bloods are a really great barometer of not getting things out of control and knowing that I am doing a great job. I have moved the needle. Things are looking really good. And let's go instead of having those questions or getting concerned or a bit nervous about is it the right time or what to do. So we can use some of those benchmarks, a microbial analysis, those sorts of things. So we can settle ourselves because there's no point in having this incredible preconception and looking after yourself but being so stressed that you're not going to 
um, you know, have this optimum environment for your baby and that can then cause a problem. So if you're that kind of person, then um, using some data and some bloods is just such a great way of getting yourself into that nice, calm, set point of being, you know, getting ready to conceive. But yeah, I would say about six months leading into it. Um, it's interesting in my time, so my little boy Noah turns 12 next month. So, um, at you know, when I was going through this sort of getting ready to have children, all we did was really stop drinking. And, you know, back then it sometimes it was only sort of two weeks beforehand, for goodness sake. <laughs> so, and, and interestingly, the fellas would stop drinking more out of um, uh, kindness we didn't know that the, you know, the microbiome of the father impacts the microbiome or, you know, obviously impacts the microbiome of the female but also impacts the birth of the child. It impacts the uterus. It impacts the amniotic fluid, fluid. It impacts so much. So the father shouldn't be along for the ride and just go, oh, well, I'll just quit drinking. It, is, it definitely should be the same. And, you know, if you guys have got this, you know, ping pong effect of some thrush going on, if you've got all of these um, issues going on, then yeah, both of you should be sharing that load. And, like, and I love what you said about make it a little project and a fun journey and um, get excited about it. And because you're going to have to get excited and, and stick together as a team when Bubs pops out. So it's a, great, it's a great sort of way to get together and how do we work together and how do we communicate together about these things that are really important to us. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think six months is really reasonable, of course, relative to the individual circumstances. Um, and also, you know, you, you're not going to know where you're at entirely. Let's say you've never done a microbial analysis. So, you know, you're going to get information back for the first time. And um, if that sort of two months prior to your family planning sort of schedule, that might not be enough time based on, you know, what you need to do to rebalance the gut. So six months, take some of that pressure off your own timeline. And, you know, timelines are important because I, I did, I had to plan things out around, you know, when Grace was going to arrive in the world very much so, especially working for myself and everyone's got their own unique circumstances. So I think just giving yourself that little bit of an extra buffer avoids the unnecessary stress, which we're definitely trying to avoid at this point in time and gives you some time to readjust things or improve some areas that have then been identified through blood testing or microbial analysis that, yeah, could be improved prior to you, um, you know, starting to try to conceive. Absolutely. And what a wonderful time to partner up with a practitioner that is just as excited about this next phase as you are. So you've got someone there to ask those questions to ensure that you're getting a flood of information that is appropriate to your philosophies and what you're aiming to achieve and to build that relationship with them. Because um, what my mum told me was very different than what I will tell Maya because my mum had very limited information um, and just came, you know, it was basically just have more scones with cream on the top just before you go into labour. Like it was, you know, very much um, based on comfort and what's going to make you feel the best, which was wonderful. She was so great at supporting me on lots of different levels. But 
Um, it, you know, if that information is, isn't being handed down and you don't have a partner um, to work with as in a practitioner to form that partnership with, that's a really good time to form that because that takes time to trust that practitioner and to learn and to ask the right books to read and, um, you know, how to, how to start cooking in a different way and how to get used to ferments and how do you make bone broths and you want to make sure that that's all habit by the time Bubs comes along and that you've got heaps of it in the freezer. You don't want to be learning this stuff when you're, you know, eight and a half months pregnant and you're tired and you certainly don't want to be learning it when you've got a, you know, a one-year-old who's screaming at you and doesn't sleep, which is, um, you know, sort of my journey. I started learning about all of this sort of stuff with a very, very sick uh, child that didn't sleep and that's not the right time to be learning things. So there's so much you can do to start with just to make that journey so seamless. I love that. And also, you know, getting some more information around the type of um, prenatal that you might take. Like we've had this conversation before on the show where um, for a lot of people, they find out they're pregnant at sort of 12 weeks and they're either not taking the prenatal or they're taking the wrong thing. Now there are some schools of thought that we should be able to get everything that we need, including the right kind of folate from our food. But um, at the Natural Nutritionist, when we work with our clients and we organize the blood testing prior to conception, we always request the MTHFR gene so we can have a look at just a, you know, a, a brief snapshot as to whether that um, individual needs either more folate or a specific type of methylated folate and very individual within the whole clinical picture, of course. But you know, we're never suggesting an elevator or anything like that anyway but just understanding the requirements, very individual rather than this blanket prescription, which unfortunately is that conversation that we hear about all the time in, in conventional Western medicine. There's just one or two brands that are, that are known about in that prenatal space and very often they're poor um, forms of folate, not absorbed very efficiently and can be quite inappropriate for those that have an MTHFR polymorphism. Yeah, absolutely. That was certainly my picture. I found out after I had MTHFR, the homozygous, and I was on Elevate. So, mm -hmm. gosh, I wish I had have known all of that information beforehand. But wonderfully, I know that already about my daughter Maya. So when she moves yes. into having children, oh, my goodness, so far away from here. But, uh, you know, we just know that. We will know what's going to be best for her. So it makes a huge difference, an absolutely massive difference. Yeah, I think it's so significant. And um, that six months prior, I'd love to talk a little bit more about specific nutrients because you mentioned liver pate and this is such a controversial area because we're all told to avoid um, vitamin A in pregnancy more specifically, but all of the issues that we see with vitamin A are from high doses of synthetic vitamin A. But unfortunately, this has been applied to vitamin A sources of food and we've all had the fear of God put into us about staying away from foods like organ meats, which you and I know is incorrect, but I'd love to unpack um, nutrients, but specifically looking at organ meats and liver pate that you mentioned, because they really are nature's superfood. Absolutely. And yes, we should be um, always concerned. Or, or intuit, we should always be curious about 
any synthetic supplement that we're having, even if we have MTHFR and we're having a methylfolate, we should always be looking at can we get this from food? What are the cofactors that we need that are important to ensure that um, having that nutrient is actually beneficial for us and will do what it needs to do and will support the pathway that we're trying to ensure works effectively? And that is the difference between, as you say, Steph, you know, just eat real food. That is the difference between real food and synthetic nutrients because food is like this perfect Christmas present. It's this perfect parcel that has all of the other cofactors all wrapped up in it Mm. that don't cause this, you know, block or doesn't open up the floodgates or change these pathways within our body and cause these problems. So. When we're seeing things like, oh, you know, take this supplement or take that supplement, you're dropping into the ocean one specific thing and that could completely change the pH of the ocean and it could mean that, you know, the little fish die because the pH isn't appropriate and then the big fish grow because it's the pH that's right for them. And that's the same thing that can happen in our bodies. One small change if you're not watching it closely or you're not sure what you're doing can make such a significant change to certain pathways that it really can cause problems. But we can't extrapolate that out to food. I mean, when we look at organ meats, for example, it has such a rich source of B12, B6, the vitamin A. It's got so many different B vitamins, cofactors, nutrients in there that are going to support all of those pathways and every single piece of that pathway so it works in unison and it works together. It doesn't make a change like that drop in the ocean. That can then have a flow-on effect that then you have to find another supplement to, to stop that flow-on effect and then another supplement. Because really in the end, sometimes, I mean, we talk about this, you know, ultimate pill-popping of medication. It can be the same with our supplements too. You can have, oh, well, I'm taking this for that and now I need to take that because it's a, cofactor for that but then that's pushing my um you know my detox too hard or now i'm over methylating so now i need to take that to bring that back and you can get yourself into sometimes the same situation as uh, medications so we always want to come back to food but when we look at food (laughs) we need to make sure that this food is beautiful organic food that actually has the nutrients in it Otherwise, we can be um, eating food that's uh, think when we're thinking that it's building up our resources, but sometimes it's not because our you know our poor soils and our poor food is quite nutrient depleted. So we've just got to be really sure that when we're using food as medicine, which we should always start with, that the food that we're using has the most optimal amount of nutrients in there. Um, and then if we do want to look at making sure that we add in other nutrients we're adding in nutrients that's got that extra cofactors that takes into account the whole pathway the whole reason why we're taking it not just a little bit for here and a little bit for there and plugging in the holes so but absolutely organ meat is that and or any food any nourishing foods it's a whole food it's, you know, it's from nature, so it knows what to do. It knows all the different cofactors that are needed. And it ensures that we have those building blocks and all of those essential nutrients for pregnancy. 
Yeah, absolutely. And pate is an interesting one. I, I wanted to discuss it specifically because most people who don't already eat liver pate or organ meats in general will turn their nose up the first time they get either, you know, more information about it or let's say it's in my personal experience um, that I'm suggesting it to a client. And I like the word curious that you used before because I think it's something that we really need to take a step back from and rather than just immediately screw up our nose and maybe think about the organ meats that we were force fed from our grandmother as a child, (laughs) understand the benefits from a nutrient point of view that it is a whole food and provided we're looking at, you know, pasture raised, like you said, organic and this really high quality proteins that support obviously the environment but the health of the animal the quality of the product and that direct flow and effect to your health then we are looking at how we can really nourish ourselves in that preconception phase and then like you also said have some beautiful habits for pregnancy that we've already developed because you know, it's important that you start as soon as possible, especially when we look at nutrients like iron and B12, which are often quite depleted in that second half of pregnancy. It's really hard to fix when you're 20 weeks pregnant. And unfortunately, many people um, end up needing an iron infusion, which is a whole nother conversation. But imagine Mm. if your stores are so well and beautiful when you decide to conceive, how different your experience will be just simply from an energy point of view, not to mention the baby that you're then growing at that same time. Oh, yeah. You want to enjoy the pregnancy. You don't want to be on the couch (laughs) exhausted. So, yeah, and I think that's so important um, just to reiterate again about getting into a routine. And because this is something that you want to then share and ensure that your children, this is just, this is their norm. This is what they do. This is what they know. And you you need to make sure you've got that down pat. And so, yeah, and, and not being scared of it. And what I've found with our clients, the ones that are severely, um, deficient in iron and B12 and all of the beautiful nutrients in the liver pate, they screw up their noses even more at it because when you're that deficient in those nutrients, they're the ones that drive that detox train. And so if the train is broken and, you know, it's not working and it's broken down on the side of the tracks, when you finally get the train back on the tracks and when you finally get, um, you know, some get the train moving again, those big wheels start moving and things start going and it will start to dump toxins and it will allow your body to do what it should do. And that can make you feel a little bit crap when things start cranking and things start working properly. And so people often sometimes like, oh, liver pate, I can't handle it. It makes me feel funny. I don't think I can eat it. And often it's just because suddenly you've actually got the nutrients that your body is so desperately requiring, it cranks that train or that wheel to start doing what it needs to do. And in that process, it's sort of cleaning things up and it can make you feel a little bit off for a little while. But you put, you know, you obviously work on that. You make sure that you're adding in all your detox tools and it doesn't take long to pop out the other side and you just absolutely love it. And, and you crave it. I've Like my daughter, holy smokes, when she was three, she would eat liver pate for breakfast off a spoon. 
Wow. She just couldn't get, yeah. I mean, obviously there was something going on for her that she she was self-selecting and she knew she needed it. What, what a beautiful thing to watch as a mother. That's fantastic. Yeah. It was so cool. So I would have this bowl of liver pate in the fridge. It just constantly there. It was always on high rotation. I'd just make it every couple of days. And she would literally get up in the morning, this gorgeous little girl, oh, my goodness, and she'd go into the fridge and she would get it. Um, oh, my gosh. We'd, I'd have it in a glass jar, Steph, and every morning I would be like, oh, here we go. It's going to fall on the ground. And, <laughs> but, you know, I wanted to encourage her to go and make the right choice in the fridge. Um, and she, she would grab this liver pate and just hold into it with the spoon and then she would know when to stop. So some days it would be three or four little teaspoons, other days it would be six, and then she would just know when to stop. And then just one day she just stopped eating it and then she would only have it sort of once a week. So she she just sort of topped up the tanks. She knew. It was just awesome. I think back now, oh, wow, what happened there? And who cares? And food was medicine. Yeah, oh, I just think that would have been incredible to watch and getting a little bit um, ahead of the journey. But we're here now. I just think that how beautiful it is that our children are being fed this food from such a young age. Because I don't think I ate liver pate until I was about 30. <laughs> and um, <laughs> yeah. I just come from a, a family that, you know, eats sort of normal Australian food, but n- nothing sort of outside that box. And liver pate is not. Um, because it's, you know, quite historical if we look at what our, maybe our great-grandparents or our grandparents ate, but it just kind of got lost in that uh, westernization of our food and the fact that when I was young, we were feeding babies rice cereal for iron, not pate like we are mm. in 2020. So thank goodness there's been such a 180 in the last mm, 30 years or so. Um but so good that your children had that from such a young age and that as mothers and fathers now we can introduce it ASAP. If you're not already doing it, you know, all you need to do is get some really good quality, um, probably chicken livers to start because they're more mild in taste and put them in this bag bowl that you're already making and then the whole family gets to eat them. So Mm. keep it simple rather than overwhelming and you don't even need to make your own pate if you don't want to. You can just buy the livers and cook them as you would your mince and I think that's a beautiful way to start to introduce some of these um, more unique foods that may be new to you at this stage. Yeah, absolutely. Lovely. Um, anything else you can think of that comes to mind around even like some myths that we're told to in that preconception phase around certain foods or nutrients? Um, I think it, I think probably the greatest myth Mm. is oh just just eat anything comfort food um, (laughs) and just um you know if you feel like the dry toast because you feel sick well just have that I would once again just start thinking about thinking further about that and just really is is that the best approach um why do I feel sick am I tired is it that I actually just need to sleep more and, you know, why, why am I craving that food? Is it because I'm, my body's feeling stressed? Am I not nurturing myself enough? And do I need extra support? So it's more just about making sure that you've got all of that information there. But 
I would stress um, about making sure that we are nurturing our microbial community from mm. the get-go and colonising it as best we can. So preconception, get out in the bush and roll around in the dirt as much as possible. Like I am actually not joking. Like mm. get your hands in there, roll around, get the dirt up your nose, get as much microbial community on your body, on your skin as possible. Because these microbes are our, our lives. They're, they're what we made out of. They are absolutely our living force. And so you've got to make sure that your microbial community is absolutely 100%. So that also involves introducing fermented foods at preconception and getting used to those and getting them on your um, high rotation that you don't even have, have to think about it. So you know, oh yeah, when I have my liver pate, I have a little bit of um, sauerkraut on the side or after I've had a beautiful meal, I have a little bit of yogurt for dessert with some fermented fruits or just getting into that routine of having ferments because that microbial colonization is so important because it sets up the whole cascade of microbes that end up with your beautiful baby. And so you want to start from the get-go and you want to love fermented foods. Most people, if they've never had fermented foods, when they start eating it, they don't love it. You have to change, <laughs> you have to change your whole mouth biome to even consider liking it because most of our mouth biomes are completely out of whack. Our mouth, mouth biomes are set up and geared up for sugar and geared up for um, wanting sugar. And so we don't even really promote that sour taste at all and so it, it takes time we've got to shift that balance of loving sour and getting that microbial community changed and we want to make sure that our whole body has changed so when that beautiful baby comes onto your skin and when you have that first feed which um you know if, if the situation is right and it's a breastfeed you literally want the microbes on your breast to be just perfectly ready to go to be able to have that translocation of your microbes onto your baby's microbes. So I really want to talk about that, Steph, in, um, as we move along, which is that, you know, intramammary sort of translocation. I think that's really important for us to discuss because I really, I just want to get into obviously the, the bacteria and all these beautiful microbes and how important that is. But once again, the father's microbial community is just as important. So um, make sure that you've both got that. If you've got skin conditions, eczema, if you've got psoriasis, if you've got any of those things going on, then you need to really address that because those microbes are going to be shared with your baby. We have a skin biome that can either be in balance or it can be out of balance. And so we want to balance skin bone. So when we're hugging our beautiful baby or our baby's father, um, they, you know, we want to be sharing beneficial microbes. So I have been known <laughs> to have our little, um, you know, babies bathed in the culture wellness yogurt or getting the whole family in a bath with culture wellness yogurt to get those microbes back on there again, get the family out into um, nature and making sure that we're getting mud baths and if the kids are, you know, 12 months old or, you know, what, two years old, mud patties and all of those sorts of things. It's just so important. We cannot 
be um, scared of dirt and we can't be scared of all of those beautiful bacteria because mother shares all of her bacteria with baby and it's got to be thriving. It's got to be absolutely beautiful. Mm, Yeah, so lovely. So starting in that sort of six-month period prior, if not before, I think is absolutely um, the perfect time. Just two more things that I wanted to mention in that preconception stage, especially um, in my world where we talk a lot about fasting and becoming fat adapted and decreased meal frequency, we have to acknowledge that that's actually the opposite environment from a fertility space. So for a lot of my clients, especially those that I've been working with for a number of years, we're actually starting to make a switch, maybe not in six months, depending on the individual, but definitely three months prior where um, this might sound obvious, but not it's not for everyone, where we don't, when like there's no extended intermittent fast, you don't need to worry about doing your 16-8 anymore. You're maybe even adding in a little bit more um, meal frequency, so like an afternoon snack, even if it's, you know, veggie sticks and a cup of bone broth, like something quite simple, of course, but we just need to take stock of our behaviours and have a look and analyse those um, with that fertility lens. So are these behaviours like fasting or um, a decreased meal frequency serving my fertility goals? In most cases, the answer is no. So we start to make some gentle changes in that space as well. Yeah. And so once again, that's patterns and routines. When you're used to fasting in the morning and you don't need to worry about breakfast or a morning top-up of, of some nutrients, <laughs> suddenly, suddenly you're like, oh, okay, I'm back with breakfast. What, what did I eat? What can I yeah. eat? Where were we at again? Oh, I've got to wake up an extra half an hour or those sorts of things. So, yeah, once again, routine and just um, flicking that switch into nurturing as opposed to maintenance or especially for your yeah. athletes. It's very, very different environment. It's hard to get your head around. Oh, it can be. Some people find it really overwhelming. And then we sort of walk that tightrope between what's intuitive, like, you know, I'm not force feeding my client. It's <laughs> like breakfast or a smoothie at 9 or 10. So not like 7 a.m., but certainly not 1 p.m. And just sort of trying to be intuitive if you've got that capacity Um well, I mean, everyone does, but it can often be masked by our, our desires, whether it's, you know, body composition or expectations, who knows, but we've really got to be able to sort of be quite intuitive and, and look at things with that fertility lens. So behavioral changes, absolutely. Um, and taking time to implement those, especially if you've lived one way for a number of years, it's going to be an adjustment. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk conception. Um the, I want to go back to what you said about sort of comfort food because especially for those that um, women that find either trimester one or um, their whole pregnancy quite challenging from a, you know, whether it's blood sugar control or nausea or cravings, like it, it can be really quite easy to default to eating sort of whatever you want and whatever you feel like and I don't know if giving in is the right word, but totally changing some of those habits that you set up in the years or months prior. So, yeah, let's explore that from a conception point of view. So, um, you know, maybe early pregnancy. Yeah. I think a lot of that actually comes down to we are so used to pushing ourselves and um, not stopping and nurturing ourselves that when we our body is doing, certainly our um, 
you know, after conception, our body has got so much to do, mm. so much to do. And we, and often we don't stop and give it, it needs a lot of rest. It needs a lot of nutrients. And so I think, um, yeah, when we're tired, fatigued and overwhelmed, our body then gets into that stress response of requiring glucose to keep us going. Mm. And so then our blood sugars pop up and then we're like, oh, I've got, I've got to get through this day. I'm so tired. I'll just reach for the carbohydrates or the sugars. And, and so that really sets up a poor pattern when really it's just about, I need so much sleep. I can't keep up with going out with friends and training and growing a baby and working full time. Something has to give. And so I, I think it actually comes down to our expectations on ourselves. I think we think that we can uh, be pregnant and just keep up with everything that we were doing beforehand. And it's just actually not possible. You can't, can't grow a little human like that. It takes a lot of energy and a lot of resources. And so I think we've just got to actually take stock and realise what our beautiful body's doing and how much support it needs to be able to do that. So I, 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 see, um, I see a lot of our clients where I see people that just go to bed <laughs> and sleep and sleep and sleep and they're able to manage their cravings and they're able to manage their um, morning sickness so much better because they're able to maintain that good quality nutrients and that constant flow. And because they're sleeping more, they've got a a little bit more energy to then cook the liver pâtés and the bone broths and the things that they need um, for those times where they are tired and they can reach for the right foods. So, yeah, often it is that spike in blood sugar because of just sheer exhaustion. Yes. Absolutely. Your body needs carbohydrates for energy. And so the typical default is toast or potato chips or whatever it might be. <laughs> really negative flow on effect. And what I notice the most in people that um, fall into that trap is when we sit down and look at what kind of nutrients they're eating or how many cups of vegetables they're eating per day, it's just so low because these carbohydrates are going to displace a lot of our beautiful whole foods. Um and so then it's about often finding that sort of mid-ground. So, you know, you're going to – some people find they need more carbohydrates. It's certainly more than a standard LCHF template. But some of the foods that, you know, I think nature is so clever um, at putting in such amazing um, levels of B6, which is a great anti-nausea vitamin, are things like, you know, avocados and bananas and sweet potatoes and – um, even a little bit of peanut butter can be helpful. So maybe it's just trying some of these more whole foods that perhaps feel comforting to you, but that of course have far more nutrients at the same time and then allow you to still try and follow the pattern of getting your non-starchy veggies, quality proteins and healthy fats in the best way that you can possible. Mm, absolutely. Because you're growing a baby at this time, right? So white bread or toast and Vegemite and, you know, packets of chips aren't going to cut it. <laughs> like that's the reality of it. What was mine? Mine was the Red Rock sea salt chips. Oh. Holy smokes. I mean, how many packets of those did I go through? <laughs> it just makes me, oh, dear. But that's okay. Peanut butter and banana smoothies, but they were pretty good and I tried to sneak some greens in. Um, yeah. Mornings, but definitely in my first trimester, I remember I would 
like either make one or go to Combi Coffee. Those in Melbourne will know what I'm talking about and have their, um, yeah, their peanut butter cup. And that was my little treat. I eventually got over it as my body sort of settled. But I mean, there yeah. are ways to satisfy the if they're cravings or if it's nausea. Um, for me personally, it certainly was eating a little bit earlier, even if it was something smaller, that made the biggest difference. So everyone's individual and you'll have to play around with what works. But I really would hope that we could sort of try and move away from that old school eating whatever you like or eating for two mental, yeah. very much disproven. And then just experimenting and being curious about how you can navigate this whole new stage of your life and, and doing it your best um, without added stress, but also really trying to keep that nutrient-dense lens in, in view. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, anything else around conception gut health? I mean, it's definitely maintaining the behaviours that you implemented in that preconception stage. No, I think it's just more important to really make sure that there's there's that robust gut environment there. I mean, obviously that's my sort of biggest thing to make sure people have got that because the gut microbiome of the mums, it just influences the infant's gut and the health of the infant's gut so significantly. So it really has to be that high priority because you can you have the absolute power to set up your child's immune system, to set up their ability to breastfeed, to set up their nervous system, to ensure that they can digest their food and assimilate all their nutrients. You've got the power to set that up with um, maintaining and keeping your gut in an optimal way. And obviously making sure that your, your gut is optimal because, I mean, the reason why I ate those packets of chips constantly was because if I had anything with fibre in it, the amount of explosive diarrhoea and bloating that I had was just so extreme. I couldn't actually, uh, it was just so painful for me to eat anything else, which sounds crazy that chips were fine, but broccoli wasn't. Mm. Um, and we, we won't go into that today, but I didn't have the microbes to digest that beautiful nutrient-dense food. So I wasn't eating it, therefore I wasn't digesting it and absorbing it, and therefore I wasn't handing it on to bubs um, in utero. So that, that robust gut microbiome really sets the scene for you to absorb all of the peanut butter cups and bananas and all of it. Mm. And, you know, the, green, the greens and the broccolis and the sulfur-rich foods and all of those B vitamins from the liver pate. If your gut's not robust enough to be able to absorb, absorb sorry, um, digest, absorb and assimilate that, you're not handing it on to start with, to build that beautiful little baby. But then it's not robust enough to then hand on those beautiful bacteria to bugs to ensure that you don't get things like mastitis and you don't have an imbalance with, um, you know, baby. And you don't have to then look at antibiotics to keep these imbalances under control and, you know, it's not having a baby that's born where their nervous system is just on high alert the whole time and they can't, they can't settle, they don't have the right bacteria to be able to absorb and digest mother's milk. So it's very, very, very important um, to ensure that you can eat a variety of food, a diversity of food, and you've got an abundance of fibre and richness in your food because then that really sends on that 
um, beautiful microbial community. So your child can do that too. Because, you know, in my case, when, when my kids are born, they couldn't eat anything either. Like poor little Noah, he had so much trouble even digesting my own milk to the point that at five months, um, you know, I was given the advice that I just think you should stop breastfeeding because he's allergic to your milk. And what a funny thing to say that a baby is allergic to mum's milk when it is just the most natural thing. And so what he actually was, you know, was, was he just didn't have the microbes to digest that beautiful milk. He didn't have any bifidostrains. He didn't have any of those things um, that enabled him to be able to digest it. Um, breast milk has, you know, oleosaccharides in it, this beautiful um, type of sugar that feeds the bifidostrains in the bub's gut, which, in, which ensures that they build a robust immune system. So, you know, my kids didn't inherit any bifidostrains and, um, because they couldn't then digest those oleosaccharides. They couldn't then actually grow that microbial community because when we have bacteria, we want to then feed it the things that that bacteria needs so it can um, multiply and grow and proliferate. So the poor thing started out with, with none. And then any time um, I tried to, you know, feed him with the oleosaccharide sugars or add in any of those first foods, he just didn't have the resources there to be able to make the most of it. And it's a terrible place to get in because, you know, when we see a child that has um, issues with their gut, we see colic and diarrhea and that, you know, poor sleep and that arched back and the vomiting and you know, when it gets really bad, it's low weight gain and failure to thrive and fevers and fussy eating and all those sorts of things. And then before you know it, they're on PPIs um, and given a diagnosis of reflux and which, you know, once again happened to Noah. He was on low sec for goodness knows how long and um, which obviously then impacts the gut microbiome even more. So, yeah, and not only is it in preconception that we need to look at that gut microbiome, but we need to look at it literally during pregnancy yeah. and then afterwards to ensure that we are, we're handing on like this fountain of life. We're handing on the most, um, the best start to life. So mm. um, it just doesn't matter what cot you get or what car seat you get. It doesn't matter what muslins they have, you know, all of those things that we, we tend to get so excited about or what baby monitor we're buying that I mean that's to no end yeah (laughs) I couldn't care less if you've got a bugaboo or a mountain buggy what I care about is do you have enough microbes to feed that beautiful little baby to ensure that they have the building blocks to build a robust immune system so when they hit daycare they just fly on through and have no problems at all so, um, you know, it, it's just so important to make sure that you are in the best um, possible situation so that loca- that translocation of bacteria is just seamless. You don't even know it's happening because yeah. it's just so beautiful. It's just happening naturally as it should. And, you know, I totally agree. I think, um, you know, everyone's experience during pregnancy is quite different. And, you know, I had a great pregnancy that I don't always share because I don't want to get punched in the face by those that find it really quite challenging. But I mean, that 
foresight that you can apply during pregnancy to really appreciate that the decisions that you make is going to shape your post-birth experience and, and the health of your little one. Like it has to come in somewhere because, you know, if you're going to, you know, neglect your gut or just eat white foods, then very often we see the same thing repeat itself in the next generation, you know, a fairly dysbiotic gut. And then when you get to introducing solids at four to six months, lots of challenges with dislikes and, you know, craving white foods, not loving vegetables, like you said, unable to digest certain fibers. And like, it breaks my heart that all this could be avoided. Like I have mums come to me that have got mastitis or the baby's got oral thrush, like we were talking about. And like, again, nearly all of it, if not all of it could be avoided if we change the education in this space and as mothers um, redirect our focus when we're pregnant to have that foresight that our decisions really matter um, and will totally shape that post-birth experience. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if I think about um, back on my experience, I had mastitis twice, which was treated with antibiotics had those antibiotics twice. You know, Noah had antibiotics for constant ear infections. He had giardia twice. He had um, constant, constant issues with diarrhea. I mean, he had blood in his stools. We were told to give him Nurofen for being so unsettled. Um, You know, like I look at it now and I'm like, wow, that is just classic textbook complete out of balance for both mother and child and you know unfortunately for us um or fortunately I see it as both sides um you know we ended up having you know fecal microbial transplants because the situation was so bad that we had to fix it um with some pretty full-on measures that people shouldn't have to go through now it's changed the absolute course of our lives. So I'm just so grateful for the research and for the opportunity. But that just didn't have to happen. I mean, I didn't have to go through that experience um, if I had have known that, wow, <laughs> preconception, this whole thing of, you know, coconut yogurt and um, getting a stool analysis to look at the fact that I had clostridium and I had some really serious infections in my gut. And I, I could have used beautiful herbs and um, beautiful fermented foods and, you know, I could have spent some time rebalancing that. Would have made the world of difference, the world of difference. I, I know I'm, because I have this great sort of um, opportunity because I, when I had Noah, I didn't know all of these things. And when Maya came along, my knowledge had increased significantly. I didn't know what I know today. And even the research wasn't there that we know today when Maya was born. So she will be 10 this year. But I knew, um, that, you know, gluten-free and I knew about adding in fermented foods and I developed the culture wellness cultures by then and all those sorts of things. So, um, gosh, the difference. Mm. I just can't believe it. She breastfed till she was almost two. She never had, she didn't have antibiotics. She didn't have, she just sailed on through going to childcare. She slept. Oh, who who would have thought a child that sleeps, you know, like all of these things and didn't scream nonstop. And it was just such a joy to be around. And I just loved having her, whereas Noah was hard work. Um, You know, and you consider, gosh, this is, you know, 
I'm in a state here of um, feeling really, really low. So, yeah, it, it can be absolute polar opposites. And, mm. and there's, there's support, there's help. There's knowledge, and um, but it takes time and it takes work. But you just get a team around you and you, you just get there. You just sort it out. Yeah, you don't have to do it alone. You know, you read my mind. I was thinking about um, that just as you were chatting. Like get, yeah, get that team around you and, and help work through any of the barriers or the concerns or the questions or the unknowns. Like that's what we're here for. So I think, yeah, absolutely having that team around you is so helpful because it really does take a village. Um, I have so many more questions, but I really want to put um, some time aside for a whole episode on what we can do post-birth for mums, dads, and the new bub, and then obviously infants and beyond. So what I'd love to do is put a bit of a call out to you guys, as Kirsty and I always love to do, to get your questions. So anything related to what we've discussed today around preconception or conception gut health, and then knowing that we're going to be speaking a lot more about post-birth and um, testing and first foods and beyond. We'd love to hear your questions. And then Kirsty will come back for a part two in the very near future. What do you think? Oh, I love the sound of that because um, I don't want people to think it's doom and gloom and there's no. no hope. And I certainly don't want anyone to be listening and think, oh my goodness, I ate the chips and the donuts and my child, you know, is formula fed and here I am. And, you know, our, our guts in tatters. Um, that's fine because you can make such a great change. The body is incredible, just incredible. It knows what to do when it's given the right resources. So absolutely, Steph, we, we have to do that. It will be just so wonderful to, to talk about all of the incredible, very easy and simple and very cost-effective things that you can do to make significant changes um, to completely reshape the health of yourself and your children and create a, a wonderful life. It's it's so exciting what, what yeah. we know now and what can be done. I love that. Definitely. You can't change the past, but you can redirect the future. So even if you have been listening and there's been a few triggers for you or, you know, some, some things that you wish you might have done differently, like let's use our energy on, you know, focusing on what we can do now. So we're both here to help you if you need some support um, and you can head to the show notes for how to contact myself or Kirsty, and I'll be gathering those questions um, over the coming weeks. So, Kirsty, it was so beautiful to have you on the show again today. Thank you, and I can't wait for part two. Thanks for having me, Steph, and I agree. I can't wait either. Thank you so much for listening, team. Make sure you dive into the show notes over at thenaturalnutritionist.com.au forward slash podcast. Now, before you go, can I ask you a favor? I'd be so grateful if you would leave me a five-star review on iTunes. I personally read every review and comment and love hearing your aha moments and takeaways from each episode. Together, we can continue to spread the real food love. See you next time on The Real Food Real. This has been a production of TheWellnessCouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on Facebook.com forward slash TheWellnessCouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives.
Possible Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.